0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. So, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Blaine Saint Germain. I am the lead student pastor here, uh, and it's been a privilege to be here and get to know the staff and the and the uh, students, and, and just get to get to learn and connect with everyone. And uh, next week, uh, Pastor Scott is going to begin a new series uh, through Ruth with this message of redemption and so uh, this morning I kind of want to give a prelude to that somewhat um, as we as we're going to talk about our identity our new identity in Christ see a few years ago uh, they did a nationwide study amongst junior high and high schools across, across America because they wanted to understand this new generation. They wanted to understand what made it tick, how they thought and everything. And so, so the, the results of this survey that came back well, were honestly a little, a little perplexing. They were a little confused by it. They were kind of surprised by it because the results, one of the key aspects they were looking for was what was the major struggle of adolescence of the time. And they were expecting promiscuity. They were expecting peer pressure. they were expecting drug or alcohol use. But the number one issue that came back, according to the survey, was identity or purpose. They didn't have a purpose. They didn't have an identity. See, because that's what the world and, and all the promises of the world that, hey, do this and it'll satisfy, do this and you'll, and you'll, and you'll find that fulfillment. It leaves us empty. And so this morning, I kind of want to talk a little bit about that. See, this isn't, this isn't just a student issue, though. One of the major—Jesus uh, started his, his ministry out with this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And in that, there's this, there's this overwhelming sense of identity that he is trying to teach there's this, he's trying to teach them. See, because think about it. He's taking, he's bringing them from their actions to their heart. So he's telling them, just because you act a certain way doesn't mean it becomes who you are. What's he saying in the Sermon on the Mount? He says things like, You've heard not to commit adultery, but if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. He says, You've heard not to murder, but if you hate in your heart, you've murdered. See, what Jesus is doing is he is taking us from actions to purpose. He is taking us from actions to identity because we can, we can do, we can be, modify our behavior all day long, but that doesn't change who we are. And so Jesus is is giving us this example in the Sermon on the Mount, all through the Sermon on the Mount, where he is changing the scene. He is talking to a bunch of Pharisees, a bunch of Sadducees who were accustomed to, to following a bunch of laws, following a bunch of legalistic rules. And Jesus is coming on the scene and he's saying, listen, your spiritual identity must go beyond your behavior. Your spiritual identity cannot be found in a list of do's and a list of don'ts. Your spiritual identity must be found in what the Lord is doing in your heart, and that is what He is trying to teach in Romans eight eleven. A powerful verse. It says, "The same power that conquered uh, that con- that Jesus conquered the grave lives in you. The same power in Jesus that conquered death and conquered the grave lives in me and you. If that's the case." Why are so many people in the church defeated lives? Why are so many Christians living defeated lives? If we have the same power that conquered death, that conquered the grave, then why are so many Christians living defeated? It's because we're not finding our identity in the spiritual transformation of Christ. And so this morning, I want to unearth that a little bit. Probably my favorite author is a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer. And in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, this is the first line of this book. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about us is what comes to our mind when we think about God. What is Tozer talking about? Well, if you read the rest of the book, you'd understand. He is trying to help us understand this spiritual transformation, and that's where we find our identity. See, because we all have a worldview, which is basically a lens in which we view things, a lens in which we view our job, a lens in which we view our spouse, a lens in which we view parenting. We all have a lens in which we view things. And if that lens, that worldview is murky with religious or worldly perspectives, then it is going to change our proper theology of who God is. And it's going to change who our identity is. And so today, I want us to take an inventory of our hearts, every one of us, as we're going into a new series where we're talking about redemption through the book of Ruth. I want us each to take an an inventory of our hearts because the reality is the world is full of distractions and promises. And every one of us, from the newest believer to the most seasoned believer, is susceptible to these distractions of an identity crisis of the world. You see, because it, it all started in Genesis 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, the world was perfect The world was was amazing. There was no sin, no brokenness, no sorrow, no death, no pain, no heartache. It was amazing. And then Genesis 3, man rebelled. And Scripture says that everything broke. The most important man's relationship with God, but not just man's relationship with God. Everything, the environment, government. You want to know why government's so messed up? Adam and Eve. Because everything broke in that moment. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes. We get mad. How can a loving God do this? It's not a loving God. It's us and our sin. Our sin brought the curse on the brokenness of this world. And so every one of us from that moment has a God-sized hole, a God-sized void in our hearts. And every one of us are susceptible to trying to fill that void with promises of this world with pleasures of this flesh, maybe if I just make a little bit more money, maybe if I could just get that promotion, maybe if I could just get that bigger house, maybe if I could just get this relationship, younger people. If I could just do this, it'll satisfy. It'll fill this void, this longing in my life. It'll satisfy it and fill it. But the reality is it may fill it for a season. Because let's be honest, Sin is fun for a season, but it'll always take you further than you you want it to go and leave you there longer than you want it to stay because it will never eternally satisfy. And so what happens when we try to fill that void with worldly promises? Well, we engage in the promises and and it satisfies for a season and then it's over, right? That's the difference between joy and happiness. See, happiness is, is circumstantial. You buy a new car, you're happy. You wreck your new car, you're sad. Right? But joy surpasses circumstances. And that's where we should pursue joy in our lives. We should pursue joy in what Christ wants to do in us. In his book, God's at War, Kyle Eidelman explains that idolatry is is one of the major issues of, of, of the human race. Idolatry. Longing after these promises of the world to satisfy. And this is what he says in that. He says, What you are searching for and chasing after reveals the God that is winning the war after your heart. Because he says, Listen, there's gods at war in your heart. There's idols at war. Those idols are money. Those idols are popularity. Those idols are lust. Those idols are, are, are these promises of the world. And these are these are false gods. These are idols. Battling for your heart. And you want to know who's winning at your heart? What you're searching for most. What is it that consumes your day? What is it that drives your day? What is it that that, that you think about when you're laying down for bed? What are you chasing after? What are we pursuing? You see, church, because it's one thing to proclaim Christianity. Christianity. It's another thing to be identified by the bloodshed on the cross. And that is what Paul is trying to explain here. And so because it's so easy to fall into the motions of Christianity. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians 5. And and as we're going to examine our identity, I want us to open up to this passage, and, and, and let's read it together. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As, through, as though God is making his plea through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled with God. For he made he who knew no sin to be, for, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Father, I just pray this morning that these words will penetrate to the depths of our hearts, Father. That, God, you will just anoint all of my words, Father. And that, God, we will just connect with who you are. We praise you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we, we dive into, into the uh, content, I want to look at the context for a second. What is going on here? So the church of Corinth, if you have ever read uh, the, two, the two letters Paul wrote to Corinth, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you can tell that that, that, that church was kind of jacked up, right? That church had some, had some major issues. Well, what is going on here? So in his second missionary journey, Paul plants this church of Corinth. And, and Corinth was a, was a city that 200 years earlier in 146 uh, B.C. was destroyed. And, but it was a major port city. It was in a, an amazing area. And so slowly but surely, probably Julius Caesar, about 100 years later, beca- came in and began to rebuild this city. And this city had had a lot of potential. It was a port city. It it was right where a lot of ships can come in and out. So it was a major, major find. And so so this city, although not very old, was was just being flooded. It had Romans because the Romans uh, uh, conquered it and and it was a Roman part of a Roman uh, province. Well, it had Greeks because it was in Greece. It was, it was in the location of Greece. Even though the Romans had conquered, it, it was in the location of Greece. It also had Orientals because the Orientals came because of the trading prospects, because of the, the prosperity of it. And so you had a true cosmopolitan here. You had this city of Corinth that had all these different cultures and all these nationalities. And, and, and if you know anything about the Romans, they were very greedy and power-driven. The Greeks, just look at the Greek gods and you can understand, uh, you know, the secularism and paganism behind their, their religion. And then the Orientals were very similar to the, to the Romans. So you had this city that was very, that, that was just a perfect recipe for debauchery, for a perfect recipe for hedonism, a perfect recipe for, for sin indulging, right? And so, so what was happening was you had this city of Corinth that 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 had the statue of Aphrodite's in it. That kind of gives you the the picture of, of how just you know hedonistic this culture was the 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 Greek the Greece goddess of of you know lust and pleasure had it had the statue of it and so and so Paul plants this church he he lives there for 18 months he he meets uh Priscilla and Aquila, and he begins to plant this church and he begins to love on these people and invest in these people and share the love of Christ for these people. And and about 18 months later, he leaves and he turns the, the, the leadership over. Well, then word gets back to Paul. Hey, the culture in Corinth is beginning to infiltrate the church of Corinth. And so the culture that was around this church was beginning to make its mark. So Paul writes these two letters to help lovingly but very straightforwardly correct them. He's trying to help them understand that that you can't fall into this unashamed, you know, gross immorality. But you need to find your identity in who Christ is. And so that brings us back to our passage. And this morning I want us to look at five principles uh taking apart each one of the uh, passage each one of the verses and look at five principles as we examine our own spiritual identities as we as we check ourselves so to speak and say okay have I have I allowed the promises of the world the distractions of the world to slowly find my identity in and the first one verse 17 says our resurrected life. He says, therefore, if, it's, if anyone is, a, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things are here. The old is gone. The new is here. This is, this is very straightforward. See, we see a lot of people who come to saving knowledge of Christ. They, they, they find Christ. They, they find the promises he has. And, and what they do is they'll take the morality of Christianity and sprinkle it in their old life. And they just modify their behaviors. And so they live this life with a modified behavior, with a higher morality life. But the reality is that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, you were dead, now you're alive. There's a dichotomy there. There's a contrast opposite there. You you don't just sprinkle a little bit of life on a dead person and think he's going to be alive. Either he's dead or he's alive. He's alive. And that is the stark contrast he's given us here in our resurrected life. When we become a a believer, then we were dead and now we are alive. There's a stark contrast here. See, we don't need Christ to be moral. We need Christ to be transformed. And that is what he wants to do in our life. He doesn't want to make us more moral. He doesn't want to make us more religious. In fact, the Pharisees and Sadducees were the thorns in his side because they weren't getting it. The word of God was not translating from here to here. The the Pharisees and Sadducees knew the word of God. They knew it, but it was not translating into spiritual transformation. It was all head knowledge. And that's the difference. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And we have to check ourselves and ask ourselves, is that how I'm living? Is that my life? Am I just trying to be a bad person who's trying to do good things? Or was I a dead person who is now alive? Because that is why Jesus came. Romans twelve two says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. See, we read that passage and we think, well, look, my my morality doesn't have the, the pattern of this world. Church, it's not just about morality, it's a heart condition. It's a heart condition. Do not conform to the pattern, to the heart patterns of this world, the idols of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, transformation. You see, when I first got married, we had this cat, and it was the weirdest cat I've ever seen in my life. All right. Uh, So we got this cat and it was really young and we had a dog with it. And so this cat would mingle with the dog. Well, I guess the cat thought it was a dog because the cat would emulate exactly what the dog was doing. And so the cat did things I've never seen a cat do. You know, the cat would go and jump in the bathtub with the dog. Seriously. You know, the cat would start to lick you. The dog would lick you, the cat would start to lick you. And if you've ever been licked by a cat's tongue, you know how disgusting that is, right? And so it was getting frustrated, but this cat was trying to act like a dog. He was modifying his behavior. But no matter how much that cat acted like a dog, guess what? It was never going to be a dog. Because we can't just modify our behavior into being something we want to be. Whenever Jesus, whenever Paul said, therefore, you're a new creation, the old is gone and the new is here. It is more like a butterfly, like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. When a caterpillar goes into its cocoon, it is metamorphosized. It is changed. The entire molecular structure of that animal is changed. And it comes out something completely different than what it went in. And that is Salvation. It is not us trying to just modify our behavior and look the part. It's about Christ changing us from the inside out. John 10.10 says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Amen? You experience that? The enemy is out there and he is real and he is here to steal, kill, and destroy. Thank God that verse doesn't end there. But Christ has come to give us life and life abundance. Life. Is that you this morning? Would you describe yourself as living an abundant life? And guess what? That has nothing to do with circumstances. See, we tie our spiritual health with our circumstances, don't we? Well, things are tough. Man, I'm beat up. Finances, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. Paul is sitting in a jail cell half beaten to death. And he writes to the Philippians in Philippians 1.21. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He has a joy that is not tied to his circumstances. It's tied to his spiritual transformation. So our abundant life has nothing to do with external circumstances. It has to do with spiritual transformation. It has to do with what God is doing in our hearts this is the first step. If you're in here and you've been going, going to church, but you've never made that first step, that is what salvation means, to, to, to surrender your life to Christ and for him to become your Lord and your Savior. Galatians 2.20, probably my favorite passage in Scripture. Paul is talking to the church of Galatia and he says this. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. And this life I live in the flesh, I live by faith by the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, this life I live." It's no longer about the the pursuits of the world. It's no longer about the joys or the happiness that this world promises. This life I live, I live by faith. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer Blaine who lives, but it's Christ who lives through Blaine. And church, when we find our identity in the cross, when we are crucified with Christ and we find our identity in who he is and not what we are, then that's whenever everything changes. That's whenever we go from dead to alive. The second thing we see in verse 18, we're reconciled with God. What does this mean? He, he uses this, this word in verses uh, 18, or he implies it in verse 18 and he uses it in 19, this imputation. And this is a banking word. He, he got this word from the, from the banking industry of the day. And imputation is basically taking money and putting it in somebody else's account. Depositing your money in somebody else's account. That's what imputation means. And so Paul is explaining here that Jesus died on the cross and your sins were imputed on his shoulders. If you are a believer, your sins were put on his shoulders. The result is all of our sins were paid for. And they're no longer held against us. We just sang a a song. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. That is a song talking about my identity. The the fear of this world has nothing on the promises of God. So who cares what I'm threatened in this world with? I'm a child of God. That's where I find my identity. The very sin that once separated me with God has now been taken care of and placed on the cross of Christ. And I love this idea. Colossians 1.22 says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical bodies through death to present you as holy in his sight without blemish and free of accusation. I love that passage. Basically, this is what Colossians 1 is saying. Colossians 1 is saying this. When Christ looks at me, he doesn't see the, 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 the filth. He doesn't see the dirt. He doesn't see, you know, all, all, that, all that evilness lurking in me. When, Christ, when God looks at me, he sees holy and blameless, without blemish. How can that be? I can promise you I'm not holy and blameless. Because when God looks at me, I'm, I'm identified, not by my actions, but by the actions that were demonstrated on the cross that God demonstrated his love this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I don't know about you, but that should excite us. That the reality is we're not identified by our faults and our failures. But if you're a believer, then you're identified by the blood of the cross. And that should should drive us. That is our identity. Our entire perspective should change. The third thing. Messengers of reconciliation. Now that we understand this, we should be messengers of this truth. We should share it. We should, we should, you know, just live it with people. We should share this message of reconciliation to those around us. And that goes into ver- the fourth point. We're God's ambassadors. Look at verse 20. He says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled with God. So we are now his messengers. We are representing his name. We are God's ambassadors. Kind of give you a quick history lesson. So at this point, this was really probably the peak of the Roman Empire. And the Romans were just, they were crazy. They were were truly out to conquer the world. Well, when they would conquer a place, they would set up one of two different, different provinces, different types of government. You had the senatorial, which is what it sounds like, senators, or you had the imperial. So you had two, two different types of Roman provinces, senatorial or imperial. Senators, they, they, were, they were the areas, the provinces that were very unlikely to cause a rebellion. They were probably just going to fall into play. They weren't going to buck. Okay, we, we, serve, we serve the Roman Empire now, and so we're just going to be hands off. Imperial, that was a different story. They, they had ambassadors, and they had a more structured government set up there. And the Imperials, they, they, were, they were ready for rebellion. They were ready for it. And so they would send ambassadors there representing the Roman government. And so you couldn't just fall fall away forgetting, oh, yeah, we're under Rome rule. No, you had ambassadors representing the Roman Empire and you knew. Guess what? Corinth was an imperial province. So Corinth knew about these ambassadors. These ambassadors reminded them constantly who was at the rule. See, church? Church? This world is rebellion against God. And we, as believers, are his ambassadors. We are are to plead with this broken world to come back to God, to find satisfaction in who he is. By the way, side note, very interesting if you're a history nerd like me. So, You had Pontius Pilate who was in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. Why was Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem? Pontius Pilate lived in Caesarea. Why was he in Jerusalem? He went into Jerusalem the same day Jesus went into Jerusalem. Why did he go into Jerusalem? Because about 30 years earlier, during the Passover week, there's this huge uprising, this huge revolt against the Roman Empire. And so Pontius Pilate was going in to Jerusalem during Passover week to make sure a riot didn't happen again. Because guess what? Judea was a what? An imperial province. So Pontius Pilate was going in to make sure there was no uprising. That makes the story of Jesus' crucifixion make a little bit more sense. Why would Pontius Pilate, who knew Jesus was was faultless and blameless, why would he still allow condemnation? Because that was his job. That's the very reason he was in Jerusalem, to calm down the people from revolting. So when the people said, hey, we want this guy, Pontius Pilate was Roman. He didn't care about religion. He wasn't listening to the message of Jesus. He didn't care about the Jewish teaching of the Old Testament. All he cared about was making sure that people didn't revolt. And so whenever, whenever Pontius Pilate hears this thing and all the people saying, kill this guy because he's teaching against what we believe, Pontius Pilate said, all right, fine. As long as you don't revolt against the Roman government, I don't care what you do. See, that's how the Roman government operated. And when you understand stuff like that, it makes Scripture make so much more sense, doesn't it? So that's what's going on there. You have these two different promises, senatorial and imperial. And so that is what it means to be God's ambassadors. Church, you may be the only Jesus people will encounter. They may never walk into the doors of this church if you don't share the truth, the message of God's reconciliation. And the last verse Brings it all together. I wish I had a whole sermon just on this verse. For he made he who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we may become the righteousness of God. We go back to verses 18 and 19 and the imputation and the forgiveness of our sins. I want to close with with a story. uh, And I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And this is probably um, one of my favorite missionary stories and it's a story of a guy some of you may have heard uh his name is jim elliot his wife was elizabeth elliot and and it occurred in in the 1950s young previous, just married had a had a young child a, a little girl and and there was this unreached people group and god and, and and three other missionaries felt god uh jim and three other missionaries felt god leading them to connect with this people group they didn't speak our language. They, they were very uncivilized. So, so they, they decided, they, they were pilots. They decided to start dropping this, this unreached people group, some supplies, and begin a rapport, build, building a relationship with this group of people. And so as they're doing that, you know, they, they're, they're, they're loosening them up to begin to go in and encounter them. Well, so they, these four white men go and encounter these people and something happened, we don't know exactly what. But these four missionaries were killed. Doing what God had called them to do. Now place yourself in that position for a second. If you're Elizabeth Elliot, newly married, young child, what do you do? A foreign country where you don't even speak the same language as them, Well, well, you forget about these people, right? You dust your heels off and walk away. That may be what I would do, but that's not what Elizabeth Elliot did. Elizabeth Elliot stayed with her young child and she began to engage and love on the very people who murdered her husband. And guess what? They got saved. Church, that is what spiritual transformation looks like. It completely defies the logic of our flesh. It completely defies the logic and the processing of of this world and its promises. And it goes beyond those things. And it says, this is who I am. This is what I'm called to. And it doesn't matter what the world promises. It doesn't matter what the world is trying to get me to believe. This is who I am. This morning, what defines you, church? Let's take the church mask off, the, the, the Sunday school answers away. Maybe some of you will truly say the love of Christ, and that's great. But maybe some of us in here, if we're truly honest with ourselves, we would say, no, my identity, has, my identity has slowly been found in power or in money, wealth, popularity, lust. If I'm honest with myself, I'm not defined by who Christ is. So this morning we're gonna have pastors down if you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never had that moment where you were dead and now you're alive, we would love to pray with you and and, and talk with you and explain more what that means. Or maybe you're in here and if you're honest with yourself in the depths of your heart, you say, my identity isn't in Christ. My identity isn't in the cross. It maybe used to be, but it's not now. I'm pursuing something else. Church, don't leave this place in that condition. Come to the altar, lay at your seats, come pray with one of us, whatever that means for you. But don't let your pride hinder what God wants to do in your hearts. Let's stand and pray. Father, we love you. We praise you for this day and this time. God, may we find our identity in who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.